and good evening. Welcome to another edition of the Data Hub. I'm Tyrone Titano, Director of the Bureau of Sticks and Plans, and your host for this evening. Uh, coming up after the CBS News at 7 o'clock, we'll have on a local FEMA official who's on island, uh, Michelle Beasley, and we will talk about FEMA's work and how it relates to Guam. Uh, also coming up, we'll be joined by uh, uh, one of the moderators or, or MCs for the uh, last week's uh, Assembly of Planner Symposiums, uh, Ginger Cruz, and we'll discuss a, a brief recap and perhaps post-mortem uh, as to how the uh, symposium, which I think went very successfully. Uh, we broadcast live on News Talk K57 and a 96.5 FM. We're also simulcast on pncguam.com, on k57.com, and also on Facebook at News Talk K57. We're a, a copy of tonight's podcast we've made available on k57.com over the uh, next few days, and links to it will be posted in the Bureau's three social media pages, one for the Bureau itself, one for the Coral Reef Initiative Program, and one for the Coastal Management Program, uh, with, uh, which is the, uh, a program under the Bureau statistics and is responsible for uh, organizing and, uh, and establishing and carrying out uh, uh, this year's Sixth Annual Assembly of Planners Symposium. And with me to uh, go over the, the proceedings of that two-day event is, was the MC, the Mistress of Ceremonies for the first day, Ginger Cruz. Ginger, are you there? Ginger? Oh. Ginger, there we go. Okay. Okay. Well, Ginger, welcome, welcome back. As I mentioned uh, last week here, and and you will, you, I'm going to put you on the spot to validate this. What has given your own illustrious career as a uh, news reporter and a uh, one of the island's uh, most dominant media personalities, and going on to even greater things, as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, um, a anchor, I believe, in, uh, in at least one major media, metropolitan media market on the, on the mainland, and also uh, Deputy Inspector of Iraq and founder of your um, uh, greatly successful international global consulting firm. But to tell me the truth, Ginger, when you step to the podium, to be kind of take the mantle of Mistress of Ceremonies for the sixth annual Assembly of Planets Symposium. Was uh -huh. it night? Was it not the highlight of your professional career, if Absolutely. not your life? You know? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there was a lot of firsts. That was the first gathering of people together to do something of a civic nature and to really focus on the future following the pandemic and mm -hmm. ironically it could be the last one for a little <laughs> while because it looks like this pandemic doesn't seem to want to let us go so no, it's, you know, um it, it was actually a very notable event because it was it was an island of, of excellence in which there were some fabulous topics and there were great presenters and there was a lot of information that was exchanged both online and in person mm -hmm. and um, it was done during a time when it just seems like the world's been shut down so uh, I, I found it incredibly successful and interesting and and was really proud to be a part of it well of, of the many uh, complimentary things you said you know and of course there are many stats to support the success of the event including uh, uh, both online zoom the people could participate by zoom in person but both online and zoom participation exceeded 200 for both days but um, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm touched by your reference to it as an island of excellence. That that certainly was our goal. 
uh, when we put together the symposium it was to is to uh, bring together uh, people involved in planning issues and, and those concerns and and generate some real discussion provide some real solid information and and point the way to possible solutions for many of the challenges of the community and so if anything beyond the turnout and you know um, the publicity attendant to it here that that I think is um, what uh, what uh, myself and, and indeed the staff of the of the bureau take uh, great pride in in terms of producing that event, you know. And uh, I think there was a, a couple other things to note. I think when the governor gave her speech, you really got a sense of how far we have come, despite all the challenges. Sometimes you know when you're you're in the middle of all of these you know quarantines and pandemic and and all of the the confusion and frankly the the distress that things like this cause and it's and it's not like Guam has never experienced, you know, viruses and and things of this nature before that have nearly wiped out the Chamorro people. So that, that was one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting. It's like we're you know, we're going through this and we have so many more tools at our disposal. We have scientific advances, we have uh, government processes that are now in place where you know, thanks to the internet and thanks to the mass development of medications and vaccines, we can save so many more lives than than the old days when you know a, a galleon ship would come through and somebody would leave a, um, a version of influenza that would like just wipe out thousands of people on Guam. So, so we've really come a long way, sort of in the grand scheme of things. But the other thing I noticed from the conference is we've really come a long way just in the last 25 years. I mean, I started out at the Bureau of Planning as a public, That's right. humble public information You're a legacy. officer at the Bureau of Planning way back in 1990. And when I was listening to all the presentations at the conference, the thing that really struck me is we didn't have the choices that you have nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had problems of there was a, a huge section on zero waste, which was so interesting because, you know, that was a huge problem for Guam. You produce waste mm -hmm. and what do you do with it? You're on an island. And now there is so much technology and so much knowledge and so many things that the Coastal Zone Management Program can look at and can study to improve transportation and to improve the lives of people on Guam and at the same time be good stewards of the planet. And it just, it, it sort of was the whole arc of history sort of distilled down into something very tangible and and i really had that as a takeaway from the conference well speaking of a like a broad um, arch of history and an overview here i why don't we play a clip from the uh from the symposium and governor lou liangaro's address and i think we have it queued up there we go governor lou liangaro who i, I had the pleasure of introducing thank you very much um <clears throat> tyrone and as i listen to all the things that i have done in a matter of less than three years, uh, I wasn't tired. I was, uh, I was thinking, wow, we have a lot more to go. But I just want to say that we wouldn't be where we are today if it isn't um, done in a very strategic, methodical, and planning environment. In everything that we do, even in the um, even in the challenges of the pandemic. I used planners, I used expertise, I used science, I used data, and most of all, I looked and surrounded ourselves with people 
who really uh, know what they're doing and they're competent. And I just want to give my deepest appreciation and congratulations uh, to Tyrone and his team and the staff of the Bureau of Statistics and Planning, and especially its Coastal Zone Management Program for all the hard work in organizing this event. Despite the challenges posed by COVID and tropical storms. A special Sidzu'us Ma'asi to our off-island guests, many of whom are not only attendees, but will also be presenting in this symposium. Some of the presenters are from the Army Corps of Engineers. I met earlier this week as part of our ongoing work with them. And I just want to say thank you so much for a very long-standing working relationship with the Army Corps of Engineers. We had just uh, yesterday signed an agreement to conduct a feasibility study over in East Ghana for our coastal management uh, uh, program and prevention that includes all of our coastal region there and also uh, the public utilities area. And what that study is going to do is it's going to give us some recommendations on how we can further protect our coastal region. And as you know, right there on Marine Drive, we have had uh, holes, sinking holes there. And uh, that's because of the waters. And so I look forward to the work that the Army Corps of Engineers is going to do to help us with that challenge. I am also very excited that we will be entering into also an agreement with the Army Corps of Engineers to help us with our hospital and to help us with, like Rhiannon said, from cradle to grave. I know that kind of sounds uh, a little bit morbid with healthcare, but it's true. We are on a target and we are on the road to getting some really good, uh, experienced people who have done hospital building from planning all the way to design, to implementation, to outcome, to deliverables, to sustainability and maintenance for many, many years ahead of us. I want to, again, give you my thanks and it's not just the hospital, but also flood control. And to just say that regardless of how far you have traveled to be here or are participating through Zoom, I want to thank each and every one of you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be a part of this event. For myself, I am very pleased to speak to you once again in this symposium. I am even more pleased that you have set an aggressive agenda over the next two days and that your focus is not only on the problems before us, but also uh, the solutions to these problems. Guam is at an historic crossroads. We have the ongoing challenge of COVID-19, which has threatened public health, devastated our tourist industry and caused great dislocation in our community. 
The battle against COVID goes on, but we have achieved historic milestones in vaccination rates and hospitalizations and death rates are low. We have been able to lift restrictions and crowd size and we believe we will be able to maintain this policy with an aggressive strategy of testing, tracking and treatment combined with continued mask mandates and vaccination. The battle may not be entirely over yet, but I am very confident we will win. But even with these challenges, this is also time of great opportunity to build back better using new federal grant opportunities, new technologies, and a serious effort to plan for the future instead of just letting the future happen to us. We have the power to build a Guam that is safe, a Guam that is prosperous, a Guam that's sustainable. If we are smart in the choices we make now for our island's future. Over the next few months, our administration will be conducting a major tourism repositioning and rebranding study to put Guam in the best possible position to take advantage of rebounding tourist markets. We also will be creating an agricultural master plan to build up our farming sector and aquaculture feasibility study to develop investment opportunities in that field. Beyond building up our traditional industries, we will also branch out to diversify our economy into new industries, including information technology through the creation of a Silicon Village. We will also be conducting feasibility studies for industries in transshipment and additive manufacturing otherwise known as 3D manufacturing. To protect the environment, our administration will be establishing the first ever, as Tyrone has said, territorial seashore protection plan. And as a consequence of our implementation of the Coral Reef Resiliency Strategy, we will soon be actively conducting restoration work for islands coral reefs to prepare resiliency against future assaults on the reefs as a consequence of climate change. Very real. We have built a sound fiscal foundation for the future by nearly wiping out the deficit and we are moving forward again, as I had stated, to build a new hospital and make substantial investments in childcare infrastructure and public services. But this work is just beginning. The path ahead will require database decision-making on new policies and new investments. It will require creative thinking and research into the most promising alternatives so that we as a community make the smart decisions and smart investments into Guam's future. This is why the work you do the research and discussions you have on the choices we make as a community, this is why your role as planners is so important at this crucial moment in our island's history. Of course, 
No one can predict the future, but we can prepare for it. We can plan for it. We can take the steps to advance all of us to our shared goals of expanded educational opportunities for our children, jobs that pay a decent livable wage, safe streets and neighborhoods, healthcare accessible to all, and improved quality of life for our people and a community that is both prosperous and sustainable. I firmly believe that all these goals are in reach, but it will take all of us working together to achieve them. I know that as planners, you will rise to this moment and join the task of building a better Guam. Thank you again for your commitment to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Thank you for your participation today. May you all have a great 2021 assembly of planners symposium. And Biba to all the planners. Sizuz Masi. And that was Governor Lulian Guerrero giving the opening remarks of the sixth annual assembly of planners symposium that was held last week at the uh, Disitani. Um, quite a retelling of the, um, uh, quite interesting to hear that speech again, isn't it, Ginger? It is. And, you know, when you put it all in context like that, it, it really helps you to understand, you know, what it is that government does overall uh, to, to sort of make everybody's lives better. Too often, I think you you get caught up, you watch the news, and, and nowadays that's one of the things that it kind of makes me a little bit nostalgic and a little bit sad because it, it seems that everybody gets caught up with you know the the small details and the conflicts and and digging at each other and in the process i mean does the public actually learn something useful do do we see how far we've gone do we have a plan for where we're going next not really so mm -hmm. you know, it really is important that people take some time um and and see how far we've come and then really sort of be part of a process to participate in supporting the government and the professionals and the planners who are going to figure out what the next decade's going to look like and what opportunities are going to be out there. And, and that's what you and your department do. Well, well, we, we, uh, we, um, it's a small agency, but um, yeah, it, uh, it's filled with some very talented people, and that's my privilege to lead. And we do what we can to, to tackle these issues. Uh, so, Ginger, uh, I wanted to ask you what, you know, you've, you've talked about uh, some of the major elements of the, um, of the symposium, but I wanted to ask you what, what uh, stood out for you. Uh, from the proceedings. For me, it was the Lieutenant Governor's opening remarks in day two because he gave marching orders to add another day to next year's symposium that focuses on innovation in the community, not only in the government but in, in the private sector uh, as well, and, and innovative solutions from some of the many uh, uh, challenges for the community. So that, that one stood out to me because I got new marching orders. But, uh, but for you, wh what are some of the things that stood, up, stood out for you, uh, particularly in that first day's proceedings? I think in the first day, what stood out to me is the fact that we're already on a path towards innovation. Mm. Um, there were some things that were already started between the government of Guam and the private sector that were kind of put on hold because of COVID. Uh, this idea to uh, collect food that would be wasted at the buffets of hotels mm -hmm. and to see how that could be safely converted to be able to 
feed people that are needy or that need a little bit of assistance. Yeah. I mean, things like that. Yeah, that, that project was, actually was unveiled at the last uh, symposium, uh, yeah. which was in February of last year. Then COVID hit in, in March. And it's been put on abeyance, but not not dropped. We're going to get this one done. And so that was revisited in this symposium as, as a sort of bookend to what has disrupted all our lives. But I'm sorry, uh, you, you you were saying... Uh, uh, well, there was that. And then the, the other one that really struck me was this whole concept that now instead of just, you know, having landfills that keep on going to mm-hmm. infinity and, and we have no idea how to get the trash off the island and it's too expensive, actually have ways to turn it into plastic, to turn it into paving, to turn it into things that are so useful and helpful on Guam, which would then just, you know, it's the whole circle, circular economy, right? You, mm-hmm. you lower costs, you create jobs, you keep things on the island. I mean, that part to me I also found really interesting because I'll tell you, 30 years ago, I mean, there was really only two options. One is, you know, have the super fun site of the Orda dump keep right. going. And, and two was to just burn it, which, of course, you know, in some cases you can burn a little bit of it. But, again, you're creating environmental issues and, and there's, you know, questions about plastics and things like that. So those two struck me because they were innovative and they are being looked at now. And the fact that Coastal Zone Management Program uh, and Ed Reyes and those guys are, are looking at that and having those discussions and seeing how to integrate these ideas and concepts into the future for Guam. That, to me, was, was very cool. And, and there was, in fact, a session where we went over uh, some of the initiatives out of the um, Coastal Management Program to uh, deal with the issue, development issues of the island, including the ongoing work to uh, create the island's first territorial seashore protection plan, uh, the state uh, system forestry plan that had been developed with the uh, uh, Department of Agriculture, uh, and, and Joe Kanata, who's a par- uh, from Guam Preservation Trust, who's uh, one of the uh, uh, partners with the Coastal Management Program, talked about uh, the, his uh, proposals for a heritage master plan. But all this um, uh, preceded um, uh, a new development in that uh, the Bureau got a uh, uh, $750,000 federal grant to finally uh, do the Guam 2050 Sustainability Plan, which will be a, a land use development plan for the island. The first time this has been comprehensively addressed for, gee, half, more than half a century, I think, during Ricky's second term. And, wow. uh, and, and because of the legislature's action a couple years ago to update what was then the Comprehensive Development Plan law and to uh, put in on uh, a basis sustainability principles uh, and, and therefore, and in the process, uh, give it a more specific goal as the Guam 2050 Sustainability Plan. It will be a sustainability plan for the community. And uh, as, as and so many issues that don't normally would fold into sort of normal land use planning are going to be uh, called into uh, a discussion and evaluated and, and being uh, immersed and, and uh, injected into the plan because it's not a matter of just defining you, you build what where or a development plan, which is basically um, a plan to like build stuff. You know, but this will be a plan that provides for the long-term sustainability of the community, and um, I'm very excited, and the, and the people in the uh, the bureau are very excited, and it's something we're going to launch launch over the next uh, couple months. And and speaking to uh, some of the uh, the other issues that uh, uh, that were raised and how they involve a lot of other partnerships here, but they also involve the community. And this one for the Guam 2050 Sustainability Plan is something that the community would necessarily have to be involved in because it'll be about making choices for the future of the community. 
And to make that one work, you've got to give a basis or a forum and an avenue for the community to start making those choices. And as uh, Governor Leon Gross uh, stated, uh, it's a matter of making choices for the future and letting, instead of letting the future happen to us. I'm, I'm no, sorry. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think that, you know, as you, you look at the island right now, the thing that you're seeing is the military is it's full on in planning. I mean, you, you drive around mm-hmm. and they've got it all down there improving infrastructure, building up roads, you know, putting in new new buildings and, and all of these things. And you see a lag in what we're doing on the on the, Gu- the Guam side. And, and, of course, that's because right now the economy has been stalled mm-hmm. because of COVID. And so this idea of being able to use this time while the tourists are not on the island to be mm-hmm. able to really put together some plans and then formulate what it is we want to do as Guam starts to open back up, mm-hmm. how do we want to leverage that? What are the things we want to do? Flooding, that was a big issue in, in the uh, symposium, which is a really important issue because with all of the changes and in, in the climate and with all of the issues with global warming mm-hmm. and the, the bleaching of the coral reefs, there's so much that we need to take care of with our natural resources. And at the same time, we also need to protect businesses and homes and, and all of these things and so i mean it's it sounds kind of mundane to the average person they're like oh it's a, it's a planning conference but without planning we don't have the luxury of being able to just jump in your car and drive down a nice dry road and, and go to a, a you know nice area and be able to conduct your business and have your kids go to school and, and be safe when storms hit I mean, all of that takes a lot of work behind the scenes, a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, and incorporating new concepts, new ideas. Um, and, and I know you're going to be talking with uh, a representative from FEMA shortly. That also had a, a prominent mm-hmm. place in the conference mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, particularly on day two. And, and, of course, we live in a time where the funding opportunities coming in Washington will it creates greater opportunities for actually implementing these plans and, and um, yeah, uh, uh, making, bringing to reality the solutions that have been developed. Um, you know, that's that's one of the things that we've been talking with the FEMA officials who have come on line for the symposium as well. I've had a number of side meetings during it to discuss uh, grant opportunities and, and, uh, and other concerns. So, Ginger, we're now at 2 minutes, 45 seconds less from the program. So I'm going to give the mic to you because I talk too much most of the time. So... <laughs> And I, anyway, you, this is time for you to give your final thoughts about the... Uh, well, I, I guess my final thought, again, I'll, I'll keep it on the topic of planning. Uh, mm-hmm. Something, you know, when you when you pull back, you can really see it through a lens. And, you know, there's a couple things that you can really see on Guam. When, when the Coastal Zone Management Program first got involved in creating these zones where we said, hey, we don't want jet skis in Tumon Bay because we want the fish to come back. And at the time, everybody was mad. And, and mm-hmm. I remember I was part of that whole thing. And here it is, 25 years later, you go down to Tumon, there's fish everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the coral is starting to come back. So, I mean, things do change and things do happen. And you can see it with the great arc of history. You can see how planning, like all of those typhoons that used to wipe out the mm-hmm. island every single time. And then pretty soon the government decided, hey, we're going to put in procedures to force people to build to a higher building code. And at the time, nobody liked it because it was more expensive mm-hmm. and it was harder to do. But as a result, now when storms hit, people aren't afraid because they have secure, well-built, to the highest standards structures that stand up against the earthquakes and the typhoons on Guam. So planning is so important for our happiness and for our future. And I'm just really proud of all the folks at the Bureau of Statistics and Plans and you 
for doing the great work that you do. And I just want to say I appreciate it. And uh, I think everybody on Guam should really appreciate all of that thought and care and love that goes into making sure that our future is going to be better. Well, thank you so much, Ginger. That's very, very kind of you here. And, uh, and thank you so much for volunteering your valuable time. Uh, for the um, for the sixth annual Assembly of Planners Symposium, which a- again, as we've established, is the highlight of your professional life, <laughs> a professional career, if not your entire life, you know. So now that you can now go into retirement, having rich, reached the 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 apex of your contributions <laughs> to human civilization, uh, you can now gracefully exit the stage, having you know capped capped off your an illustrious career with with that moment uh but anyway seriously Ginger, thanks so much you uh, certainly help uh, keep the um symposium moving and 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 also and captivating people's attention and uh and uh and added uh, a great deal of spark to the event so thank you so much my friend oh and, thank you very very much and i'll have always. you on back sometime soon to talk about the middle east and the near east yeah. you know afghanistan. I, I, not Ooh, afghanistan you know who you knows i hear something interesting is happening there but we can talk about, about that later all right anyway thank you Ginger. All uh, right. com- coming up, we have the CBS Radio News, and afterwards, we'll have Michelle Beasley from the Federal Emergency Management Administration. See you all on the other side. This is the Data Hub with Tyrone Titano. I'm Tyrone Titano, Director of the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about national uh, a natural disaster recovery with an official from FEMA who's uh, on an island for a number of reasons, including uh, doing a presentation in last week's uh, Assembly of Planners Symposium. Uh, Michelle Beasley is a Federal Disaster Recovery Officer from FEMA Region 9 uh, Recovery Division. We are broadcast live on Newstalk K57 and on 96.5 FM. And we're simulcast on GTA Channel 3 and Docomo Channel 2. We're also uh, streaming live on pncgoon.com, on k57.com, and at News Talk K57 on Facebook. A podcast of tonight's proceedings will be made available uh, on uh, the Bureau's three social media pages, one for the Bureau itself, one for the Coral Reef Initiative Program, and one for uh, uh, the Guam Coastal Management Program, which was a program under the Bureau's sticks and plans founded by the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. Uh, and was an important part, uh, component in um, in uh, uh, the organization and carry on of last week's sixth annual Assembly of Planners Symposium. And uh, one of the uh, uh, subject matters that involved most of uh, day two was on the whole issue of uh, of uh, disaster uh, recovery planning and disaster preparation. And in that, we had another presentations from uh, not only the local uh, Guam recovery officer David Cruz from Homeland Security 
and also a forecaster from uh, the National Weather Service, but also uh, from uh, uh, two uh, uh, very important uh, officials from FEMA. One, uh, one was uh, three, three actually. Uh, one from um, uh, Robert uh, Pensapane, uh, who uh, gave a YouTube case study. Also, uh, Katie Lepecki, the FEMA Region 9 Mitigation Division Director. And also giving a presentation is our next guest, Michelle Beasley, who I said is the Federal Disaster Recovery Officer, FEMA Region 9 Recovery Division. Michelle, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we, yes, we can. Uh, Michelle and I, you know, even though this is a small island, have crossed paths at least three times over the last few days. One, of course, was at uh, the uh, two-day Assembly Plan Symposium, and just... Uh, and uh, just this afternoon, uh, when she was, uh, 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 what would you call it, a workshop, uh, Michelle? Um, I, I think I would call it strategic, crucial conversation. Oh, that so much, sounds so much better than workshop, you know. Let, let, let's deal with <laughs> elevated terms here. Um, but but actually it was um, one one of the things that uh, Michelle was leading and uh, and uh, with a, a number of agencies represented not only the Bureau of Statistics and Plans uh, but also Homeland Security and also the University of Guam, uh, the Guam uh, Council on Arts and Humanities and the Department of Tomorrow Affairs, and uh, um, and, and and a number of other uh, agencies here was to lead a discussion uh, regarding um, uh, planning or pre-disaster planning uh, for. Uh, the protection and uh, the recovery of Guam's natural resources and its cultural resources, which is something new. We've in and the disaster recovery plans that Guam uh, uh, has uh, uh, developed here. They're usually in, in three areas: one in health and social services, one in economic recovery, and a third one in community capacity. And however, um, at the direction of the Governor Lieutenant Governor, we are developing a, a recovery plan that is address one of the. Uh, the annexes, namely natural resources and uh, cultural resources recovery, and, and 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 let me let me give you an assessment of today's meeting. This was one of those uh, uh, that you uh, helped carry out. It was less a matter of uh, you coming from FEMA giving all the answers, but rather you fostering the discussion uh, amongst uh, uh, those of us involved in uh, in pre-disaster recovery planning and recovery efforts to develop our, our own answers, or more importantly, uh, uh, develop the questions that need to be answered. Uh, that best suited our needs. Would that be a uh, would that be a good way of describing it, uh, Michelle? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, really what I was hoping to do is lead a series of conversations around where local communities can come together and lean on their strengths. In, in, really. Instead of instead of de descending from the mountains with the Ten Commandments. Uh, you generate discussion <laughs> as to what our values are and we were we, we concerned about, uh, about it, which I thought it took me a while to catch on, but I, I, I saw the value of it as the discussion continued. Absolutely. And I think, you know, really a big part of that conversation was introducing a new way of talking about mm -hmm. how we describe what we consider community and a big part of that community is not just the natural heritage of the space and places that we live in and need to take care of but also uh, the human capacity and the culture and the heritage that comes with living in a place because there is a relationship and I think that that relationship is critically important for how Guam can lean on their own strengths to recover appropriately. Well, per, 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 before we get to into cultural and uh, or natural resources and cultural resources protection, why don't we start from the beginning and sort of lay out uh, the sort of FEMA uh, approach uh, to these issues and, con and concerns. Um, yeah, as I don't know if I explained to you, Michelle, one reason why I do this program is to provide a long-form forum for issues that 
are a little geeky, but kind of too complicated to uh, sit into a 30-second soundbite or a few column inches of the newspaper. So I, I, I kind of want to get deep into this one. So maybe um, a good way to start, if, if it's okay with you, uh, maybe a, just sort of description of uh, uh, what FEMA terms the National Disaster Framework. Would that be a good place to start? Yeah, okay. I think that's a fantastic so, place. So why, why don't you discuss the uh, National Disaster Framework for, the, uh, uh, for the, uh, the benefit of our listening audience, and then from that we can go into the annexes, like, uh, like uh, economic recovery, with, or, or whatever path you think is best to, to sort of roll out this discussion methodically, like you did so well today. Thank you. I appreciate your uh, assessment, and um, I'm actually thrilled to have the opportunity to unpack uh, mm-hmm. these big terms that we like to use. <laughs> and so the National Disaster Recovery Framework is a framework. It is a structure that one can put into place uh, after a disaster or even during a disaster uh, when a community is looking to, uh, A, figure out how to respond to keeping their community safe, keeping their community in uh, a place where stability can come back. And typically what ends up happening is as you are working a response effort, and this is often seen in emergency disaster uh, frameworks, uh, you will also begin to recover. There is a concept of um, how do how can the community begin to bounce back and build back better and stronger than they were before that disaster happened. So that's the usefulness of the framework. And the framework really kind of leans on what we call recovery support functions. And really what this is, is uh, a variety of different uh, groups coming together around common themes uh, that are typically impacted from a disaster. So you might go ahead and focus in on community building and capacity um, and planning. You might focus on economic, health, human services, natural and resource culture. Um, additionally, you might focus on housing and infrastructure. So these various different recovery support functions will then pull the appropriate agencies across the entire community. So that could go from the federal level. Um, There's a lot of federal agencies that might be able to provide support or resources. And additionally, that begins to be seen as you go down and you see the the state level, you see the local level agencies coming together, and uh, additionally, you see the community. So the community can be individuals, it can be community-based organizations, it can be nonprofit organizations or NGOs that are really leaning in and they have a very particular niche or a very particular strength or a voice in where and how they think recovery and the aid and support can come and help in helping them build back better and stronger. And so those recovery support functions really allow uh, an opportunity to have a voice in the conversation and then additionally to have a voice in the decision making about what the priorities for the recovery are going to be. And I think that that is uh, where, you know, things can get really interesting very quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, well, perhaps also, uh, before we get to um, cultural and natural resources, or revisit it again, why why don't you walk the listening audience as to what the six, um, I I guess the the annexes are, 
uh, by which you can, or, 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 the, uh, or uh, as you put it, the um, uh, the uh, recovery frameworks. Um, you bet. Yeah, well, just go through them one at a time and sort of convey to them what they what I mean. Some are obviously like economic, but perhaps I'll, I'll let you uh, ex- explain it, I think. Yeah, no, you bet. So um, uh, basically, um, let's start with one that I didn't mention, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So that's one that folks are fairly familiar with because a lot of times after, say, a typhoon or a hurricane or a big storm or uh, even this pandemic, uh, there is this concept that infrastructure might be impacted. And, for example, for COVID-19, infrastructure didn't necessarily uh, come in the form of a physical building that was destroyed. Instead, what was realized is that uh, a lot of communities didn't have broadband access. And broadband is considered an essential uh, infrastructure uh, space to actually walk into and to begin to actually build up. And so in the absence of, of the, the broadband, for example, um, folks that needed to provide telehealth and they needed to jump on to their you know, medical appointments through a computer or through a phone or do the same with school or do the same with work or even have basic communications, Mm -hmm. that got disrupted. And so a big part of the infrastructure uh, recovery support function can help in the rebuilding of a school or a community center or to actually build in the the structural cables that are needed to be able to uh, bring broadband uh, into the community. And so that's one of the recovery support functions. Before we continue on, perhaps we should uh, just take a moment to sort of uh, expound on on what you mean by recovery support function. You're talking about uh, basically a process uh, that starts not only in, in, in planning and preparation, but also in the the mechanism which are used to do recovery, which can which uh, you know, given the nature of disaster recovery, can run the full gamut of uh, of uh, infect- effectiveness, uh, depending on, on on how much is invested into it. Uh, is do I have that right? Am I describing it um, uh, pr- properly, or am I missing something? I think the recovery support function really allows a group to self organize mm-hmm. around how they can lean in together mm. um, and use a process. So it's they're an, organize, it's an organizing principle, in other words. Uh, but they're really actually um, organizing uh, to help prioritize what the most critical needs mm. are in order to get the right resources and support uh, to meet those critical needs. So a lot of times in disaster, what you're going to find is that something has been taken away or destroyed or is no longer available. And what the recovery support function can do is it can bring the appropriate folks to the table uh, to lean in and to say, here's, here's what we're missing or here's what we don't have right now. And how can we lean together and really uh, begin to attract the resources and support that we need to be able to build back? Um, that one area that, uh, you know, got impacted from a disaster uh, collectively and together. And a big part of that is um, because you really want to bring a a community collective of voices to the table. You don't want one organization to control all of the decision-making and make the assessment. 
absent of the community. So a part of that process is participatory, uh, and it's a participatory process that really helps to identify the needs, prioritize those needs, and then get the resources and support uh, that need to be coordinated to address those needs. Okay, we'll go with your definition rather than mine. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm interrupting you. You were done with infrastructure and I think moving on to the others? Yes. So then you have housing, for example. And for COVID-19, where housing was impacted was in two areas primarily. Um, so you might have a lot of folks that uh, are renters and Perhaps they were also um, impacted economically. So if we were closed down as a community for a month or for two months or for longer and you weren't able to show up to work because the restaurant that you were working in was closed or the resort that you were in was closed or whatever whatever work it is that you had um, that couldn't shift to telework for Mm -hmm. example so your physical presence was needed then um then you were impacted because you weren't bringing in a salary Mm -hmm. and if you weren't bringing in a salary then how are you going to pay rent how are you going to get the essential basic needs that you need to survive housing and food and safety um and so the the housing sector really begins to bring in what you might consider a primary coordinating organization. And a lot of times we will often default to HUD um, and the Housing Urban Development Group. Like they will come in and they are a federal agency that will come in and begin to help coordinate the efforts around the needs for housing. And for COVID, uh, you know, there was a lot of legislation that was passed through CARES Act that was really helping in the response early on in the pandemic to, um, to provide uh, eviction moratoriums, to provide a, uh, a safety net, essentially, to allow people to stay in their homes and uh, to not pay rent because they weren't able to go to work. And so that, um, if there were if there were communities or vulnerable populations that, for some reason, didn't have an opportunity to have secure housing, then there was assistance that was being offered uh, both through FEMA emergency funds and then other funds to provide temporary housing to those vulnerable populations that needed to be in a safe place because the pandemic uh, required people to be in safe uh, spaces. And um, and that was just um, one of the, the instances. Right. Okay. So that takes care of housing infrastructure. And uh, why don't you go into um, community capacity? Because that's usually the one that uh, people see the title of and they're not quite sure what that is. Totally. Oh, yeah. We've got big names here. Mm-hmm. So community planning and capacity building Really what that means is that a lot of times uh, in towns and cities, uh, there will be a variety of different plans, whether they're mitigation plans, contingency plans, uh, procedures and policies that they've been pulling together in the case of an emergency. So they want to have a script for how to begin to coordinate all of the different things that you have to coordinate very quickly. Um, So that could be logistics. Uh, You might need to bring in supplies like food and water. 
that could be medical care. You need to um, plan for these things. And if you have a plan of action in terms of um, who you're going to connect with to coordinate uh, the the critical needs for a community that's been hit by a disaster, then you're actually able to go ahead and use that plan and lean on that plan to go ahead and, and act it out. So a big part of the community planning effort is really to look at the variety of different plans. So, for example, Guam did have a pandemic influenza plan, mm-hmm. but it really, it, it kind of, you know, I think it was a starting space for folks to look at and to say, okay, this is what we can begin to do in this emergency. And then what they realized is that there are a lot of things that they didn't consider because this pandemic really wasn't working like previous influenza pandemics. Well, you know, you know, after I, as, as I like to explain to people, because one of the process that, uh, that they're embarking on in partnership with the Homeland Security is updating the pandemic plan. And, 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 and the interesting thing about this is, is that, you know, we're not sort of planning for something in the future. We're sort of, you know, we're doing the recovery now. And so it's sort of like well, being demonstrated in real time uh, rather than, you know, usually like typhoon planning, preparedness, you plan for a future typhoon. This one here, we're doing <laughs> the recovery of it is being both created, developed, road tested, and carried out in real time in front of you. You just, and for the most part, you just have to record down what's really happening here. And then uh, you have your recovery plan from the pandemic. Um, the, I'm sort of oversimplifying the process, but that's a, that's a, that's um, because the Absolutely. recovery period of the pandemic is, is straying on to months as opposed to days or weeks, which is uh, roughly the normal time for a, for a natural disaster. This is, this is kind of what's happening. It gives time to go back and figure out, well, what did you do six months ago? And, and, uh, and in part, that's a, that's a good deal what's happening now to contribute to the update of this current pandemic plan. A hundred percent. And what's really beautiful about it is that we're always learning every single Mm -hmm. day and the situation is always changing every day. So things don't go according to plan. But what you're able to do is go back in an after um, after summary event and you're able to say, what did we do well? What did we not do well? What are the best practices? What are the lessons learned? Mm -hmm. How are we going to learn from this as a community? so that we can better prepare for the future. Well, of course, the title for this RSF uh, is Community Planning and Capacity Building. Now, I appreciate it varies from circumstances, but perhaps you could explain uh, what is meant by the, the idea of capacity building. That's a great question. And capacity building really is focused on um, identifying where and how a community has the expertise and the knowledge to be able to um, build back better. So what does that look like? Sometimes that means that you simply just don't have enough resource human beings to actually do all of the work. So a lot of times what you're going to find is that you might see one person playing three or four different roles. And that means that uh, there isn't a whole lot of time to be super focused and to go super deep into one very specific role, you're really just playing different roles at all times every single day, many different hats. And so the idea of building up capacity is to say, sometimes you're not going to have the subject matter expertise. So how can you bring in the expertise that you need to help uh, act as a trusted advisor, 
act as a consultant, act as someone who has the knowledge base around, say, engineering, um, rebuilding a community. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, in the pandemic, a big part of the subject matter expertise were scientists who were coming in and really beginning to unveil the data and the science around COVID and how the particular variants are beginning to change the um, the very experience of this pandemic. So if you if you didn't have scientists to tell you the difference between an alpha variant versus a delta variant and the medical science behind it, we would have a very hard time understanding as a community how to respond appropriately. So when you mean by capacity building in this context, in terms of the community planning, uh, capacity building, uh, RSF, you're, you're referring to more um, uh, uh, knowledge-based or human resource-based uh, or organizational-based capacity as opposed to um, built uh, uh, structural uh, capacity or, or a, a stash of supplies of someplace. It's, it's mostly the, the, uh, the uh, human resource and actually probably beyond that, the organizational uh, capacity to, to manage a recovery effort and to, uh, and to allocate whatever resources are available in, a, in, in, in the most um, efficient an effective manner is, is is do I have that right? Is at least I'm, I'm able to grasp that concept. Absolutely, okay. absolutely, and a big part of it is uh, uh, is ensuring that the community has uh, both the resources that can tactically work against the plan, and mm-hmm. that can also strategically help build out new plans or help um, with whatever activities are going to be needed to help in the rebuilding of the recovery. So um, a lot of times, if a community uh, doesn't have the the knowledge to uh, determine, um, you know, whether or Mm -hmm. not, let's say, uh, the medical emergency um, continues on and we don't have the doctors and the nurses to be able to care for an extraordinary surge, Mm -hmm. then what you would want to do is you would want to be able to pull folks um, uh, into the community that could help serve in that capacity. Or, or develop um, uh, uh, avenues to uh, increase capacity, either, for example, through federal institutions like CDC or private organizations like that, uh, as probably, say, part of a hospital change, some way of, of adding uh, resources, uh, not adding, adding human resources. But also, uh, I would think that you would add capacity uh, by um, uh, in, uh, increased training of existing personnel and yes. and by public education, because you're talking about knowledge base. So the more the public knows, uh, the more they can help contribute. Uh, maybe not in the broad hierarchical, you know, at, at the top end here, but at the bottom end, in terms of at you know, for example, in in terms of the a public prepared to deal with a pandemic, uh, knows uh, how to make a safe practice on a community-wide basis that contributes to the recovery is, is, is or am I stretching it uh, too far? No, you're okay. not. You are spot on. So education, uh, training, and really helping to lean into the community to give them the tools and the knowledge so that they can also act themselves is an absolute essential ingredient. And so a big part of that is also providing the technical assistance to help empower the community to have the knowledge and the skills that they need to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm so glad we, we have you on the show to explain that point because I, I've, in my own experience, I found whenever we invoke this sort of phrase here, uh, people think of, you know, uh, warehouse space. 
uh, as capacity building or, or you're storing equipment for th that, that sort of, or else uh, uh, building, uh, building up, for example, housing stock as a way of uh, building capacity to deal with uh, uh, dislocations elsewhere, which is true to add to it, but that's not really what this, that's probably covered in other segments like infrastructure and economic recovery. But this, this, this one here is, is the knowledge base, the expertise, uh, the skill sets uh, of a community and not just government officials, but emergency officials, but the skill sets of a, an entire community that can be brought to bear uh, in times of uh, emergency and recovery is is, do I, is is that a fair way of putting that? I think that you are spot on. I think that you actually know very well what capacity building is, and I think that your definition of how that extends into the community and how we can identify uh, the appropriate members in the community to lean in with their strengths and to be able to also uh, pass uh, their knowledge to others so that. Uh, a unified effort can happen is really uh, the fundamentals to the capacity building that we're talking about. Well, I, I have to fess up here is that when that phrase was first introduced to me, I, I've kind of thought in terms of uh, build infrastructure until I started reading, you know, which is always a good approach for these things, isn't it, Michelle? You know, uh, <laughs> to, to, actually, to, to actually sit down <laughs> and like redo the reading, you know, and find, and find all the truth. And so th that's when that dimension um, sort of struck um, struck out to me, and it, it was an interesting way of approach in terms of the uh, national disaster framework. Uh, so we get to now. Um, this is one of the annexes through which Guam has developed uh, uh, a plan forum for which there have to be uh, it, that's in the process of being updated. So let's go. We've gotten three go through three, and and we have time to go to the remaining three. Um, uh, let's let's go to a couple of the obvious ones: uh, health and social services. Uh, for example, obviously ones in terms of pandemic, and uh, also probably covers um, not only uh, physical health, but probably mental health, you know, um, given the, uh, uh, the rise in mental health uh, challenges as a consequence of COVID. Is yes. that any, okay? Um, and yes, so in this absolutely. context, what would, you, what would you be looking at in health and social services? Is this where we get into things like, you know, hospital beds and that sort of stuff? Um, it's um, it's really a, a very large umbrella. So um, it's uh, every aspect of health and wellness, um, including education, which a lot of people don't always um, r recognize that association. But a big part of this is um, not only separating the um, how are you uh, providing medical care, emergency medical care uh, to survivors and or to the community? Um, and what does that look like? Um, additionally, um, how are you beginning to work through a lot of the behavioral health and mental health issues that um, folks are working through with regards to trauma and with regards to grief. Um, it also extends out to social services. So uh, health and human um, services are really important, but the social services piece really extends out to a lot of the populations that often get overlooked. So that includes the homeless, that includes the disabled, mm -hmm. that includes the elderly, that includes the youth. Um, a lot of times in a, a disaster, you'll find that education systems are disrupted and education systems are really a big part of the routine for children. And when you disrupt that routine for children, um, you really begin to disrupt their entire mental capacity for how they're moving through the world. 
So you really do have to look at the whole big picture. You need to be able to look at um, the elderly to make sure that um, their needs are being taken care of. So, for example, um, a lot of times uh, you might find that there are elderly that are living um, by themselves. Um, They are attached to sometimes the need for electricity because of a variety of different um, medical needs that they have or medications. And so being uh, really sensitive to those vulnerable populations is a big part of this. And, um, and, And ensuring that you have counselors on site and ensuring that you have the appropriate social service organizations Um, For example, in California, we have a lot of wildfires, and during that time, you're going to find that a lot of folks are um, in a place of needing to be sheltered immediately. And um, additionally, they're also dealing with extraordinary loss. And so um, a big part of the social services piece is really beginning to focus in on the organizations and agencies that can help uh, that individual uh, bounce back. Right. Uh, By the way, I need to touch on to maybe expound a bit as to why education is related to this RSF. I mean, the title is Health and Social Services. Is so is education related to in the context of say child care and socialization? Is 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 that is that the aspect of it that uh, that uh, for why education is included in this in this RSF? Well, education, again, if you disrupt your education, that is a huge social service that we provide as a community good. Um, So in cities and towns, the community good is like a church and it's um, it's a school. So if you no longer have a school to go to, then how are students um, and young children going to learn? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a big part of the disruption. And what you're trying to do is ease the disruption that uh, these populations are having to work through. So um, you will bring in um, pieces of uh, education into that realm in order to find alternatives that can be offered um, during that time of upheaval. And especially um, if we look at Mm COVID-19, we're 18 months into this. So imagine um, the impact on any school-age child um, who has had a lot of disruption in their education cycle. So that is something to take into consideration, and you have to be able to pivot. And that's why it's part of this human um, mm-hmm. and social services community good. Okay, well, let's move on to the last two. Uh, there's, uh, there's the Economic Recovery RSF. That's that's sort of obvious. It's, the, it's uh, doing all the uh, things necessary in order to restart economic recovery. Um, well, in this case, a rather an extended period. We've we've had to try and do this one, but it, it's that one is fairly straightforward, isn't it? I think it's fairly straightforward. Um, I think that a lot of times, though, people don't always associate a pandemic that seems so health centric with economic recovery. Well, but they what do. They do now. <laughs> they do now, particularly yes, if you live in a tourist do. economy. So, you know, yeah. Okay. So, so um, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupting. You were saying. Well, no, I just wanted to make the point that a lot of times um, disasters can have a huge impact on the tax base, on how cities and, and counties and local agencies are going to actually be able to bring in revenue to provide community services and community goods. 
So a lot of times the unseen is what isn't always felt. We can we can see when a restaurant is closed or when a business is closed, but it's actually harder to actually see how that's going to affect, um, you know, on the backside, the local agencies that typically would bring in tax revenue from all of those services in order to keep their own cities and towns functioning. So that is a big part of the unseen economic recovery that is a very important part of recovery. So uh, that's a, that's the economic um, uh, recovery support function. So it brings us to the last one, and the, la- and the one you co- – by the way, I should mention here that uh, Michelle and her colleagues – uh, at uh, the second day of the 6th Annual Assembly Planner Symposium uh, helped, helped lead uh, breakout sessions that dealt specifically, uh, each one, with the uh, economic uh, uh, recovery support function, with the health and social service recovery support function, and with the community planning capacity building recovery support function. And today, uh, with a, a smaller group of uh, key government agencies, um, uh, helped us uh, uh, deal with the issues of the, uh, of the uh, natural and cultural resources uh, recovery support function. So, uh, so thank you so much for all, all that help to you and your colleagues. So, uh, I, we sort of covered in the beginning here, but why, why don't you take one more stab at it in defining what is meant by a, uh, co- a natural and cultural resources recovery support function? Um, so, a, a lot of times when we think about natural resources and cultural resources, we really do think about our physical environment, um, our ecosystem that we live in. And, um, you know, if I was to um, look at Guam, uh, a lot of what the Guam ecosystem uh, is, is a coastal ecosystem. It's an island system. So as a result, um, a lot of times if a big storm, a typhoon um, comes in, you're going to see a lot of destruction, uh, a lot of destruction to the ecosystem that basically has disrupted um, the functioning of um, various different uh, systems like coral reefs, for example. Um, And so one of the areas that you want to be able to begin to focus on is how to, um, A, get the hazards that have been created. So if a tree falls down or if um, you have a lot of debris in the streets, one of the things that you want to do is clear a lot of that debris out of the community's way so that you can actually have a safe community again. Um, And once you've cleared out the hazards and cleared out the debris, then you can begin to see what's left. Um, So you can have anything from soil erosion. You can have um, a a lot of trees or um, ecosystems that have just um, completely been flooded, disrupted one way or the other. And so a big part of that is really bringing in the subject matter expertise to do uh, specific assessments to figure out how to restore uh, the, the, the basic structure of that ecosystem that's been disrupted back into a place where it was before the disaster hit. Um, The cultural resource side is um, a little bit different. The cultural resource side we often think about as anthropological. So it's the sacred site. Or archaeological. Yes, yes. Yes, archaeological. There you go. Um, I, I always think about anthropology, but it is archaeology. Mm-hmm. And um, and so um, uh, a big part of that is really also recognizing that sacred sites, 
cultural sites, um, historic sites of importance um, have also suffered damage. So, for example, in California during the wildfires, um, you would actually see entire museums that were wiped away and their entire archives were wiped away, um, their collections were wiped away. Um, that's a huge loss for the community. It's a loss of knowledge. It's a loss of art. It's a loss of a sacred space that the community would come for um, any of their traditions and rituals. And so a big part of that is also bringing in uh, the subject matter expertise and the mapping and other various different um, skill sets to begin to restore those spaces and places that are very important uh, to the local community. You know, one of the more interesting aspects that I, I uh, from your uh, discussion and the presentation today is that you not only touched on uh, tangible uh, culture, as in historic sites uh, and and structures and stuff, but also, uh, I, although I'm not sure we actually use that phrase, uh, intangible culture, like uh, disruptions to uh, use of uh, in, in traditional languages or traditional cultural practices as, as a consequence of uh, of a natural disaster, and how that featured into uh, resiliency planning for cultural and natural resources. Absolutely, and I think that the pandemic has actually. Uh, exasperated uh, where and how physical and or social distancing and um, and keeping isolated away from our communities has impacted greatly um, both the ability to connect in um, to those intangibles but on the opposite side of that coin um, it's also brought the community closer so for example we had a, a great participant um, who uh, really is an advocate for the Chamorro uh, culture. And he said, you know, a consequence of this was that we got tired of Netflix and yeah. we wanted to go back out into our community and go hiking and begin to actually get back to the roots of our culture. And I think that that is a beautiful opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's also um, an opportunity around where disasters can actually bring positivity mm. in all of what might be seen as negativity. Well, it, it sort of uh, it not only drove us to distraction, but uh, uh, in many ways, because it dragged on for months, drove us to contemplation and uh, and to to more spiritual elements as well. Uh, but um, I, I just to uh, just to before we leave the subject in the last um, thirteen minutes of the program here, I also want to cover the issue of natural. Uh, uh, resources and um, I'm I'm um, I'm a, sort of a stickler for this one not only because the bureau is actively involved in and uh, and uh, and management of natural resources through the coastal management program but also in particular the uh, our coral reef resources through the coral reef initiative uh, program which is funded uh, by the Department of Interior and by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration but it brought me back to um, uh, 2019, when I was in Washington, D.C., as Guam's representative for the U.S. Coral Reef Task Force, which is a uh, collection of uh, uh, coastal jurisdictions across the country for which contains the nation's coral reefs. So it includes uh, Florida, as well as Guam and the CNMI and, and Hawaii, etc. And uh, at the time, uh, this is like early 2019, the big buzz was is they were asking anyone who had any connections, you know, had no no new people at the at OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, to see if they can get them to release this Coast Guard report 
on the economic valuation of the coral reefs, because once you do that, then FEMA is going to use this in order to fund uh, mitigation efforts, not only for build infrastructure, but for natural infrastructure. And at the time, of course, the, the one that came to mind is, uh, is, uh, is uh, coral reefs here. But, you know, um, th that um, and, 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 the, and the definition of what constitutes uh, a natural, infra uh, natural infrastructure and mitigation work by FEMA, I think, was uh, tested in, in Puerto Rico, in which part of the recovery efforts was a FEMA-supported efforts to uh, replant the coral reefs that have been damaged by the two hurricanes that ravaged Puerto Rico. Uh, mm. But you know, in 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 and and something that we're sort of actually exploring now. We also I'm uh, also interested, as as I mentioned, today, to see to the extent this can deal with um, with mangroves, uh, particularly since the experience from the tsunami that swept through Asia. I mean, in particularly in Malaysia, Indonesia, the studies have shown that communities that had substantial mangroves were spared the sort of uh, substantial loss of. Uh, of, uh, of uh, structural damage or, or even and even death, as opposed to communities that did not have the protection of mangroves. So, uh, mm -hmm. that that so that that by the way, bore in my and I don't mean to get into uh, the, this this tonight because this is one of those more complicated subjects uh, <laughs> here. That 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 maybe if I started there like 50 minutes ago, you know, we could have time for it, but certainly not in the last 10 minutes. But uh, I just mentioned this to, uh, to note that um, the natural infrastructure is more than just sort of um, and uh, uh, sort of an environmental uh, sort of tree hugging concern uh, or or um, an economic concern which 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 it is for a tourist community like Guam's and it's part of our competitiveness a tourist destination uh, I mean it's one of the reasons why the tourists come here uh, is our natural environment but also in 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 terms of hazards um, uh, there's been a developing, uh, maybe in my maybe in my limited uh, experience, it, it's sort of new to me. Uh, probably from your perspective, it's been a long time coming. Uh, but in recent years, it sort of has caught, um, I, I think, uh, 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 sort of fire in terms of uh, policy development on the reliance on uh, are the value of natural infrastructure to protect communities from things like storm surges and other stuff, and in which case here. Uh, this is one reason why uh, that the governor, lieutenant governor, sort of directed uh, that the uh, us and the planning um, uh, agencies are to uh, develop that annex of the national disaster recovery framework uh, and a plan for uh, recovery and uh, building resilience in uh, natural and cultural resources. Um, and uh, uh, particularly says as they're of, of vital importance to a. Uh, uh, to a, uh, a small community here, which uh, for which the environment is so much of a part of our, our daily life and our uh, economic well-being, and and indeed the uh, uh, the culture is very much an important part of our daily life and and our spiritual well-being. And so that that there's that focus in, into it. And uh, in which case, here, thank you, Michelle, again for contributing to that process by conducting that uh, that very thoughtful uh, uh, presentation. Uh, uh, this afternoon at uh, Alu for a, a number of uh, agencies, and and uh, I will have you know, you know, I, I you know one of one of the challenges <laughs> you always have, you be not you, but everybody ha has, you know, when they're they're holding, uh, organizing these sort of meetings here, and they're trying to get people to talk, you know, what inevitably happens, you can, can get successful to get people to talk. What inevitably happens, there's always more talk after the meeting, and the microphones yeah. are off. So, uh, one of the participants. Uh, told me that you know, in thinking about developing um, 
the resource um, uh, support function, um, uh, not only for natural infrastructure and, um, and, uh, and uh, cultural resources, but also other functions as well, but in particular this one here, is the upcoming Guam 2050 Sustainability Plan. Now, what that is is, is, is the standard comprehensive development plan you have in every community, which is the base of the zoning laws. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah. Uh, but however, this, um, the Guam Comprehensive Development Plan law, which has been on the books for like, uh, you know, uh, uh, m you know, at least gosh, more than half a century, um, but and is the basis for the zoning laws, but has not updated uh, until recently. Uh, we're now um, uh, going to embark on that process by starting in October. And uh, two years ago, the legislature updated the Comprehensive Development Plan law to uh, inform it with sustainability principles, you know, uh, mm -hmm. particularly the, the, the nature uh, uh, environmental principles and the UN uh, 17 principles of, uh, for sustainability and to be guided by that. So this is going to be more than just a development plan or even a land use plan. This is going to be a plan where you, you, uh, the community gets a chance to decide its future and for not only what will be prosperous, but also sustainable. In which case, and, and this brings to a question just you sort of led us through in today's present presentation, we will have to ask ourselves, what is important to us? What do we mm -hmm. consider valuable as opposed to objectively valuable based on some sort of uh, uh, esoteric academic standard? And then uh, in, and in the process there, uh, I, I think that will lead to the sort of uh, a planning and a sort of uh, organizational frameworks, frameworks that I think you were seeking in the discussion of the, of the resource um, uh, recovery support functions. I mean, part of the questions you had at the end is that who would be the lead agency to organize this one? And, you know, crickets. Uh, there was, um, but, but in part because the, the challenge seems so daunting, you know, and, but of course it's not something that can be handled by a single agency candidate, uh, Michelle. It has to be done by a multiplicity of partners and by the community at large, doesn't it? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that you can have someone who can coordinate and bring people together, but really it is going to be uh, the course of everyone that shows up that helps build the vision for the community that they want to live in. Um, we as human beings would never survive if we didn't live in communion with one another. Uh, that's just a, it's a true fact. And, um, and a big part of that means actually sitting down and kind of talking through the vision board of what it is that you want to see in your future, what it is that you want to see for your children's future, um, many generations. And I think that uh, when you can bring agencies together and you can begin to hold those conversations and begin to really pull together the pieces of what that vision could look like, that's the vision that will actually help provide the purpose for bringing people together and continuing to lean in and do the work. Um, without that vision, you, you're just going to continue to struggle. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't believe that any single one person can hold a vision. I think that really what needs to happen is that a community needs to come together, work on a vision collectively, and embrace it collectively to move towards that vision. Yes, and, and which is, uh, I think, the sort of the, it, it will be the approach we'll have to take with the Guam 2050 Sustainability Plan. If it turn, if it if it's nothing more than me and a couple of planners in a back room writing a land use plan, it's never going to fly. So it has to be something in which the community is is a participant from the very beginning. So Michelle, when you leave our shores, you can leave confident that you have made contribute somewhat to revealing the solution for us as we uh, as we deal with the issues of uh, posed by thinking in terms of recovery support function uh, how long will you be with us before you uh, before you take off 
Um, I think I have about uh, 10 hours left on the island before the plane launches uh, somewhere back uh, to the east. Um, <laughs> yes, I forgot. So, to, I, you must have told me this at some point, but where, where do you herald from? Uh, so I currently uh, am in Oakland, California. Ah, okay. I hope to get back to the Bay Area sometime soon myself here, you know, when we can travel. Uh, yes. Or when it's, when it's, you know, we really can really, really travel. But any event, um, I tell you what, Michelle, we are in the part of the program, which I, 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 I inevitably explain to uh, both my guests and listenership, is a part that I reserve for the guests because I'm known to have a propensity to talk too much and not <laughs> let my guests talk to them. But fortunately, you've had a lot of information to impart, so I think I've done a good job, at least, at least for this segment here. So uh, with uh, two minutes and 10 seconds left to go, uh, I'm sorry, three minutes and 10 seconds left to go uh, before we hit the CBS Radio News, uh, Michelle Beasley, uh, uh, the mic is yours to impart whatever final comments or information, or maybe there's a website you want people directed to in case they have any questions or uh, whatever you would like to uh, uh, leave, um, leave us with, with uh, 10 hours to go before your departure. But, but oh. you, you, you'll be returning, will you not, Michelle? Oh, 100%. I, um, I've had an absolutely fantastic time uh, meeting uh, so many wonderful human beings who are really dedicated to uh, focusing on how they can help their community. And I think that that's really the most inspiring piece is really where people come in to help people and where we really can lean in together to strengthen um, who we are and to strengthen our values and our morals and also to strengthen our our resolve um, to uh, build back better and stronger. And I, um, I really do feel hopeful that the Guam community has the capacity, really and honestly, uh, to come together and to really build out a vision that holds the integrity and the authenticity that this community um, is... It, it can be felt in the blood, right? And so I, um, I'm just incredibly encouraged after a week of so many wonderful conversations and so many wonderful connections with so many wonderful people. And I, um, I just feel very privileged to have had the opportunity to help lead and to continue to um, provide a space and a place to facilitate conversations that can turn into action. Well, we feel very fortunate to have you with us. Were you able to catch the, sun, the sunset this evening before you go? 100% on the sand in the water. <laughs> I, I am told I am told there was a green flash tonight. Did, were you able to catch one? Which I didn't see a green flash, but I did see a rainbow. Well, there we go. Close enough. Anyway, uh, Godspeed, uh, Michelle Beasley, Federal Disaster Thank Recovery you. Officer for FEMA Region 9 Recovery Division. Thanks you for joining us for tonight's program and for videos here in Guam. Hurry back. Okay, Michelle? Many blessings to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Michelle. As we head Yay. for the top of the uh, hour with the CBS Radio News, this is the Data Hub with Tyrone Teichno. I'm Tyrone Teichno, Director of the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. Uh, a podcast of nice proceedings will be made available on k57.com over the next few days. And links to them will be posted on the Bureau of Statistics and Plans' three social media pages, one for the Bureau itself, one for the Coral Reef Initiative, one for the Coastal Management Program. Uh, that's it for tonight, folks. See you next week.